Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. It is a little hard to believe that I have been doing detoxicity for about three years. Uh, even though the first episode didn't air until March 2020, I was stockpiling uh, episodes as early as late 2019. And one of the first people that I wanted to interview, although we didn't get around to publishing it until episode 30, was Julian Villard. Julian Villard is a singer, songwriter, pianist, uh, multidisciplinary kind of guy. New York City, born and raised, uh, very interesting guy, a lot to talk about. And uh, when I sent around a request to have people do follow-ups, Julian was one of the first to respond. And a lot has changed in the last two and a half to three years. First of all, Julian ain't in New York anymore. And uh, we chart his course across the country from New York to Missouri to California. And a life as a dad, I guess, is his primary uh, uh, focus at the moment with two young kids and trying to sort of rebuild a career, dealing with a cross-country move, uh, dealing with his own personal issues, dealing with loss, a whole bunch of other stuff. And it's crazy to me to think that all of this can happen in three years. I mean, it's totally logical. Three years technically is a long time. But it doesn't feel like that long since the last time we spoke to him for the podcast. So you're going to hear a a lot of uh, tumult, a lot of change, a lot of uh, uh, self-realization in Julian's story since we last connected. And I hope you enjoy it all. This is Julian Villard. My name is Julian Villard, and I'm a singer and piano player and songwriter and friends with Mike for, for like a decade. For almost a decade. It's been a long time. And you were one of the first people I interviewed when I started this podcast back in 2020, pretty much immediately after the pandemic started, I, I interviewed you. And that was two and a half years ago. And in that two and a half years, we've both gone through some stuff. I've had some changes and you've had some pretty severe changes. So I kind of wanted this follow-up episode to be talking about that a bit. I don't remember if you were in the St. Louis area when we recorded that first episode or if you were still in New York. No, man. That was really early. I was still in Queens, which, yeah, it feels like a while ago, but not almost three years ago. It's just this whole thing makes no sense anymore. It never did. True that. So you have relocated twice now in the past two and a half years. I have. Maybe not the wisest thing. So we 
We're in New York and I'm born and raised in New York. And we left in September, 2020 to move to St. Louis for 13 months, which is my wife's hometown. And we had just had our second child. So I was sitting around New York as a musician, out of work, watching children, no vaccine in sight, nothing. Right. Isn't that crazy to think about that? Like, like in September, 2020, we were moving on such fumes. The idea of a vaccine wasn't even on. I was like, okay, who knows when this might come around? We have no idea. Yeah. I mean, we and had a solid nine months of well, what the fuck are we going to do? When is there going to be something to fix this? It's so strange. So anyway, at that point in September, 2020, with nothing on the horizon, we decided, okay, let's just go to St. Louis. You get to be close to your family. It's going to be really cheap, relatively speaking. And it was. And then months later, in October of last year, we moved to LA. And what precipitated the move to LA? A few things. I've been trying or dreaming of coming here for probably for the last prior, like three, four years, maybe five years. And I'd be coming out a lot. And I kind of felt like at the time that this was the best evolution of what I was trying to do. And then there was also a really unique opportunity here, which didn't exactly pan out the way that I thought it was. But I came out here to, to open up a piano bar with people that I met through my piano bar in New York City. So I came out, I did that, and then I have gone ahead and moved on to a freelance life here in LA. And just based on the handful of times I have been on the West Coast, it is a 180 degree difference from it's, the New it's York so, lifestyle. I mean, I'm trying not to look at it as a binary, right? I'm trying really hard to not participate. And you can identify as a lifelong New Yorker. I'm trying a lot of things these days, trying not to lean into confirmation bias, all these things. But I will say that it is really different out here. And there are, there are intrinsic differences to the city that permeate, I think, the way you live here and the way you interact. The biggest one being is it's just decentralized. It's huge. It's massive. And everything's spread out. So it really functions more like a suburb than it does like a city at times. And at, at least my understanding of a city, which is New York, the reality is that New York is a super specific place. Yes, maybe it is. One or two other places on the globe that operate like New York, if that. You learn to live in New York and then it's almost like none of those skills apply. <laughs> Some of them do, but it's a different energy. It's a different flow. And... It takes a minute to try to get a hold of this thing, this city. Would you say that you are still in an adjustment period or do you think you've gotten? Yeah. I mean, I'm certainly in a transitional state in my life and professionally and otherwise, but people are nice out here. We found a really cool community out here, which is something I'm really grateful for because we moved to Burbank, which it's like the second city in on the Valley. And it functions much more like a small town than it does like Los Angeles. Hmm. So socially, it's actually been pretty cool around here. It's, it's like there's a real community, which is nice. Professionally, it's a different story. And that is definitely an evolution because I'm so coming from such a, a nightlife culture and all these things that really aren't as present here. Nightlife culture is just very different. Whereas in New York, it's all nightlife culture. It's just constantly going out. Right. You seem more relaxed than I have ever. Oh yeah. Well, you see, you quieter, which might be a function of just like health stuff. Yes, I mean, I'm not talking as intensely right now. I had surgery almost four weeks ago on my voice, which definitely that process was pretty 
all-consuming. So who knows, because even before the surgery, it was mitigating the injuries. So I was let off vocal rest officially two weeks ago. And between September 6th or whenever I was diagnosed with my vocal polyp, and that date, which is November 14th, I think I was a, 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 totally silent or mostly silent for something like 35 days. What the hell is that like? Drive you crazy, man. <laughs> Particularly for somebody like you. I for say me. this respectfully. You have a big fucking mouth. I do. <laughs> so the idea of you being silent for a month. I mean, I'm not anywhere near as vocal as you are. And the idea of me being silent for a month is unfathomable. So I can't imagine what it was like for you. Also, because you make your living, whether yes. it's a voiceover mm -hmm. work or singing, you make your living off your voice. Right. Well, it was, <laughs> was not a great time financially. And I'd love to say that I achieved some sort of grand clarity out of it or Zen. I don't even know. So that calmness you sent, I I'm still sort of in that space mentally, if that makes sense in a weird mm. way. Because it's such a head trip and your brain just goes nuts. And also, I'm doing it with two kids. Right. Not like I could just go, okay, I'm just going to go binge all of West Wing or something. Go watch Cheers. I'd take kids to school and do stuff. It wasn't like I could just drop off the face of the earth. And you have two small children and they don't do. necessarily understand that daddy can't speak. No, I mean, I was using this hysterical text-to-speech app. And you got to hear this thing. It's so ridiculous. It's really funny. And I was trying to parent my kids with this, saying to my daughter, stuff like this. Please put on your shoes. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a weird British voice. It's just ridiculous. So, yeah, sort of this experience of coming out here and going through this kind of really tumultuous entrepreneurial, I don't even really know what to call it, but this opportunity that didn't really pan out and then getting injured on the back of it. And this is coming out of the pandemic. So I think my entire 2013 was like, literally I came to LA, was working and then Omicron hit and then I got it isolated for two weeks, then got, came out for a week. And then my wife got it from her work and then the kids got it. So basically we had this five-week period where we couldn't do anything. So right. that took us to the end of January. And then I worked on this bar for seven months or something. And then as soon as I left, I, I got the injury. So it was like my whole 2013 has been this kind of crazy, almost like extension of the pandemic in a way. Well, also not, 2013 was nine years ago. Oh, shit. My bad. 20, <laughs> that's uh, 2022. What happened Damn. in 2013 that you're stuck on that year? I don't know. But I still feel like in a lot of ways, I haven't fully, not recovered, but March 2020 was a massive disruption for me. And I mean, I'm sure it was for a lot of people, but I still feel, feel like I haven't quite landed back into where I was since that point, which to be honest, I'm okay with. Right. Like that doesn't make me sad, but I haven't hit my groove since that time, if that makes sense. I can empathize with that. I mean, that sounds like a lot of people though. Yeah. But also yeah. knowing your life and you had regular gigs and, and things that you were doing and all of a sudden it was just like, Oh, hard stop. It wasn't yeah. gradual stop. It was like, Oh, this shit ain't happening no more. And then it's like, okay, well, this is how I make my money now. Where is my money going to come from? Right. And I'm grateful because I think the life that I had wasn't something that I knew it wasn't going to be a long-term fit. 
if that made sense. Okay. I was already burning out. And there was a part of me when the lockdown happened that I was like relieved. I was like, oh my God, I don't have to go. Because I was playing 120, 150 gigs a year, like clockwork. You were hustling. Grinding. Right. More than I was grinding. I see pictures of myself back then. I, I was heavier and just exhausted in a lot of ways. And I miss that level of activity for sure. But I also know that it was just something I'd fallen into as a way to survive. Right. And it wasn't exactly where I think that I would be the happiest, if that makes sense. I feel like a lot of people come to New York or they grow up in New York and they're so accustomed to the pace of it that either they forget or they never even consider that this isn't the norm. No. And maybe it's just because my day job's in music and most of the stuff I do has some connection to music anyway. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the people I know are creatives and I'm just like, you're 30, you're 35. You can't sustain that pace. Like when you're 40, 45, 50, feel like most people are going to want something a little different or they're just going to feel unnaturally burned out by the time that they're middle-aged. So I went back with my family for the first time about a month ago. And if it was just me, I think I could have kept it up. But this seeing the kind of overall well-being of my family unit, it just felt like this wasn't sustainable. And even there's a thing about New York that it gives you the sensation that a lot is happening, but you're, you're kind of just moving in a big circle. And I think that's when you grow up there, you, you get addicted to it. You feel like you're doing something all the time, but you in reality, know, you're not, you don't know different. Right, right. Right. It's having that perspective. You realize that the things that actually move the needle are few and far between. And when they happen, they just sort of come out of the blue. And I felt like in New York, I was doing stuff every day. I was achieving things, but I wasn't really pushing the ball forward in terms of my happiness. Financially, every year, things were getting better and I was growing, but it was hard fought victories. I'm making 50 bucks more each time I did the gig, that kind of stuff. Just right. things that as of now, like I haven't figured out in LA how to replace that kind of industriousness, but it's just different. Like you can't gig during the week here. People don't go out. That's one thing I've learned. Like people go out Friday and Saturday. There's yeah, stuff. I mean, you can't go out during the week because you have to drive home. Right. Right. And New York is the kind of town you get a call, do, do the crazy gig on a Tuesday night. People just going. Yeah. And I miss that. It's so much a part of my soul and my being, but I do realize that it's not necessarily, I mean, I don't really know, to be honest. I do know that my family wasn't long for the world of New York. So it was either move to Westchester or Jersey. And I was like, fuck that. <laughs> I'm not doing that shit. I mean, come on, give me a fucking break. Right. right. Like driving back from a bar that I played at like one in the morning to Westchester. It's ugh. not like, a good look. Just... But then the flip side of it is living out here in New York. I felt like I was unique in a way. Bro, I'm just another another guy trying to make stuff in L.A. See, I almost feel like it would be the opposite because what you do or your aesthetic is so specific to New York that I can't imagine there being like a Julian Villard alternative in Los Angeles. No, I'm, I'm unique. But again, I've been here a year. So what the fuck do I know? Right. It's a beast. And it's 
a commercial town. New York is a business town, but it's also an artistic town. Right. There's freaks in New York. <laughs> yes, there like, are. Legit freaks. Here, people move out here. People aren't living in squats and making crazy art and shit. That doesn't really happen out here. Right. They're on the beach. And I'm hopeful that when I'm able to unlock that component about my uniqueness here, it'll serve me well. But it does feel like when you get here that there's a line. And that's the nice thing. that the, There's no line in New York. It's just like if you can grab it by some f means of force or privilege or whatever the fuck you can get, you grab it. Right. Here – there's a line. So, like, you'll get your turn, but get to the fucking back, bro. And let's see how long you stick around because it's a transitory town. And maybe in my mind's eye, I thought that I would be able to, like, penetrate that quicker. And I may still, again, but it's definitely been a little humbling, That I'm going to say. Yeah. So when we last spoke for this, you had a newborn and a toddler. And mm -hmm. now you have a... An elementary school age kid and a toddler. Yeah. I got a five and a half. I got a kindergartner and a three-year-old. And having two kids when one of them can't really move or talk or do anything is much different than having two kids who can run and sass back and do all that shit. Yeah. How have you adjusted to having two actual humans running around um, in the house? It's hard, man. It's really hard. It's all work in progress. I don't really know how to comment on it, but if it hadn't been for my wife, I probably wouldn't have had children, right? That's something she wanted. I wasn't opposed to it, but it's identity changing. It's a gravitational force. My entire life is now about my kids. And I am grateful for that because it makes me feel like I have purpose but I'm also resentful of it because I have less freedom. Right. So especially as the second kid becomes its own person, you're like, oh, my God, there's two of these things. And, <laughs> what you the know, hell, man? Yeah, they're healthy. They're happy. They love it out here. So all those things I are not lost on me. But when you're getting up at five in the morning for the fourth day in a row and you're just trying to eat your yogurt before you get yelled at like, daddy, I need butter. I need milk. And you're exhausted. The sleep stuff is still rough. So that's also a big part of it. I, I, I noticed that the nights that I get a decent night of sleep, I'm so much more balanced for the rest of the day. I mean, that's logic. And when I wasn't talking, I was just going crazy. It's interesting. Like I used to think that having children was sort of some sort of way of like evolving to your, like it was like you took the challenge. Right. In the back of my mind, I thought that. And now that I'm further into it, it doesn't feel as, what's the word? I'm not, I'm not binary, but I respect people who have not had kids by choice. But people who don't have kids, 98% of the time, have no fucking clue. They're like, hey, you want to get a drink? It's like, I ain't getting a drink. It's seven o'clock on a fucking <laughs> Wednesday. What do you think I'm doing right now? I'm wiping asses and fucking putting PJs on. That's what I'm doing. Right. And it shocks me because I, I know what that life is like because I always lived it. And that's the part of it that does hold true. It doesn't necessarily mean it's better or worse. But once you cross into the divide, it's frustrating. It's easier for me to hang out with people who are parents because we have more in common. And these are even with my friends who are single or coupled but not without kids i don't want to feel distant from them but they'll just say things and do things where i'm just like really i know what your life is like i get it so that 
it is a dividing line. And that's a difficult thing to say to your friends who don't have kids by choice. I, I can only speak for me personally. I, logically, I totally understand. I have kids. I mean, cat, cat's blowing out plans when you book the babysitter. Right. And you're just like, yo, I'm paying a hundred bucks to hang out with you tonight. Right. Right. Like, we have to hang out. I don't care if you don't feel good. Like, yeah, or you're hungover or whatever. Yeah, yeah. we, we got to hang out. I'm paying $100 to see you. So right. you have to do this. Like, My only chance. It's costing me resources. And it's such a dramatic and elemental change. To me, it was the right choice because I think I would have lost my mind with loneliness. I don't think I could have handled it. And that was the sort of primary motivation. The selfish motivation is I don't want to be lonely anymore. I feel like you're probably not the only person who started a family for that reason. Yeah. It's the same reason why I left New York. I saw where the ball was going and I was like, I don't think that's the right thing for me. Gotcha. I don't necessarily know what the other side of it was. Like, I don't know, but I was certainly, I was like, if we don't have kids, <laughs> my marriage will end. Right. Um, <laughs> there's the practical element of it, but it's why I got married. It's all these things. I was like, okay, well, I know what the alternative is and I'm not necessarily prepared to do that just because this isn't a hundred percent what I want. Hollywood that, spoiled is, us. Oh, bro. That's, All those fake ass love stories. I, when people really couple up and get married and make these decisions based on practicality in a lot of cases. Yeah. It's wild too, because we have such an awareness of how media works now to see how deep the programming is. But that said, I, I rewatched The Firm a couple nights ago. Oh, wow. With Tom Cruise. Wow. You pulled that one out of nowhere. Dude, that movie slaps. It's amazing. I'm like, why can't they make movies like this anymore? It takes like 30 minutes to really get into it. You're just like, what is this movie about? And then when it gets, gets going, it just starts cooking. It has steaks. Brother's in prison and he's trying to hide. And there's a naivety to it that I miss. Whereas now I feel like it's just all content. I mean, so, we're, we're all jaded. Or at least Mystery. we are at this age. And I think yeah. younger people are too. Maybe even more so than us. I mean, we grew up thinking or believing things happened a certain way. And then you get older and you're like, why aren't things happening this way? Right. I guess at least younger people never really had to deal with the illusion of things potentially working out differently than they are. Well, I think I, I agree with you. Every year I get older, it's become clear to me that success and happiness are not the same thing. I know that sounds redundant, but when I say success, I mean, it could mean money, it could mean achievement, it could mean the realization of your dreams, whatever it is. And I really think that someone who has a profession in the arts, that was always sort of the line that was fed to me by the industry, by fans, you're doing the right thing. And by coming out here and playing for $150 in Indiana, just keep following your heart. And now I look back and I'm like, when did following your heart ever lead you in terms of a pro professional decision-making? It's one thing with relationships. Maybe you can make that argument, but with a profession, are you out of your mind? It is a compromise. It is work. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you are trading your time, your equity as a human for uh, uh, some value. So it hinders me a lot now when it comes to creating, because I'm like, why am I doing this? What is the end game here? Why do I really want to? write this song or make this thing or whatever it is. I have to fight that constantly, especially now too, as making a song now is not like making a song 20 years ago, obviously not because of my age, but it's like songs were precious commodities back then. 
Now it's just like, write as many songs as you can. Right. Just poop, poop it out. And I didn't grow up with that. I was like, no, no, this thing has to be great. And it's like, well, what the fuck is that anymore? So it's that programming and that idea that you have to, how do I articulate this? That you will essentially do the thing you were meant to do and life just works out. Which I, I never had that illusion. Or I mean, sure. maybe I did when I was a kid, but once I became a working human and had to pay rent, that illusion went away pretty quickly. And I, the idea of compromise became very real to me. Mm. I wonder if there's a level of privilege that allows you to keep that dream, to keep totally. that illusion. Totally. And I, I think I benefited from that in many ways. I, I think a lot of it was that I actually kind of got to that point almost. And, and I think that afforded me this larger cushion of, well, I, I got the major label deal. So like my confidence and my belief in myself was boosted to the point where I was like, well, I'm entitled to this. And in fact, it flipped the other way. I was ungrateful for what I had because I was looking at people who had succeeded and being like, well, I get this, but how come they get that? It's maybe privilege of identity or it's being young. At my age now, I don't have that. Right. I'm middle-aged. I don't get to come into a room and have people feed me those lines. Like, yeah, just keep at it. So I'm here. I'm at it. I'm playing this <laughs> restaurant. This is it. We both know this. So it doesn't matter how talented I think I am. This is where I am. You can't really feed a 40-year-old that line anymore because then they're like, motherfucker, I got a mortgage to pay. Yeah. I, I wish I had a mortgage to pay, but that would be great. Or, I you, know, for, whatever, you know, whatever right. correlate. I got to pay fucking child You got babysitters and, to pay. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, you're right. It is weird, but it's more than privilege in the sense of little privilege. It's a deeper thing. Some make... of it is privilege. I think some of it is naivete. Sure. Yeah. My dad was trying to tell me that shit for years. He's like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> you're a fucking idiot. He was telling me that shit from day one. Still to this day, he's like, yeah, music's a terrible business. What are you doing? Well, some of and it is the... also just that old school immigrant attitude right. of, I was watching this comedian, Gina Yashere, on, I was watching YouTube videos of her. She's British and her parents are Nigerian. And she says, there are only four acceptable professions if you have Nigerian parents. You're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're an engineer, you're a failure. And I think back to growing up where I'm a second generation kid and it was definitely like, okay, if arts is not something that you build a career off of. It's something maybe you're interested in when you're youthful <clears throat> and then you go and do some practical shit. But then I look at the flip side of it for me and I wasn't going to do anything else, man. The one thing I wish, I wish I just lifted my head up a little bit more. That's not even it. I wish that I was more able to take shit. What do you mean by that? My largest thing in my life that has led me to where I am in my profession is I have a deep authority complex and I'm very bad when I get told what to do and the thing that I'm being told what to do is stupid. <laughs> and that's like 101 for having a job. You know, just dealing with a boss. I'm terrible at it. I feel that. And I, I'm amazed at the people who can do it, who can sublimate themselves. And I only realized this later on. My father's the same way. He basically conditioned me to be like him. And it's this real iconoclast type mentality. And my unwillingness to play ball has been a hindrance, but it's also been a huge advantage because it's allowed me to really create revenue streams and opportunities for myself 
where other people haven't, where I've been able to just go and make an industry. I've built a family. I've made money and done all this shit just out of my own will. Yeah, it's my talent, but it's really just me grinding and going at it. There's a lot of value to that. I think I'm <clears throat> in some ways similar. I've worked for bosses my entire life. Right. I haven't liked it always or usually or mostly. And even now, there are times when I have to walk away and take a few deep breaths and then come back and be like, look, I'm getting paid to deal with these stupid motherfuckers, so I might as well just deal with it. Right. Because my impulse is to be like, no, that's not the way you do that. Or no, I'm not going to do this for you. But I admire people who, A, recognize that within themselves, and then B, figure out a way to make it through the world with that knowledge and then ultimately answer to themselves. Yeah, I think I would have been better served if I had at least diplomatically figured out ways to say this. And it's something that I've learned, and I just recently relearned it in LA. There's just shit I won't roll over for. You know, even if it's to my interest, there's just shit I believe in. And I will say that's one of the most positive things that has come from this entire experience is that I reached a point in this journey of moving and all this stuff where for the first time I hit something and I was like, no, no, I'm not doing that. No fucking way. And not even like a, I don't want to do this. It was a no, I'm not doing it. And I think I've never really, really hit that thing. I've complained a lot. I've been difficult, but I never hit a thing where it was just a firm. Absolutely not. I will not tolerate this. And then I will resign and step away because I just do not believe in this. Right. But to me, that's dope because it's a reminder that you have principles. Yeah. Which I, I didn't know I had. I mean, I want to be clear. Like you say, it's dope. I was like, I made a stand. No, it wasn't that. It was a fundamental. Like, no, no, no. In, in the midst of all this, that's the one thing that like, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm proud of myself, but it was like a discovery for me. I was like, holy shit, I actually have a fucking wall. And this is it. And I'm not going past it. And it wasn't even like a, I'm not going past it because this is what I'm worth and blah, blah. It was like, no, no, I can't bend. And, and that was a trip. I opened this bar. It was a really dramatic thing, but it got really intense and I pretty much had a nervous breakdown. But in the middle of all that, I found this thing that was, I believe in this core fundamental element of who I am in a way that I didn't realize, especially as an artist, because you're constantly just in people pleasing mode, I'm constantly dancing. Yeah. Try, just trying to get the check, trying to get the gig saying whatever, just trying to hustle it. I feel that for sure. You'd mentioned your dad a little while ago and your dad's a funny cat. We talked about him on the last podcast. He and I have had a fair amount of interaction due to our, our collective love of fantasy basketball. That's right. I forgot, right. We probably talked about it, but he knows him in a, in a league context. And your your so, dad's a ball of... buster. <sighs> <laughs> but I'm wondering, now that you have... Two fully sentient beings uh, in your possession. Has that changed your relationship with your dad or has it given you more insight into the way that your dad raised you? Yeah. I mean, first of all, there's a lot of shit he did with me that I do not do with my kids. I to be clear. Sure. Stuff that like when we visit them and he starts doing it to them, I'm like, you can't do this. You have to stop out the box <laughs> shit. I'm talking about like, how did you even get away with this parenting in the 80s, let alone in 2022? But my dad's an orphan. He wasn't raised by anybody. So he just doesn't. But in another way, I'm sort of more in awe of him because he, he has no doubt. There's just no room for him wavering 
because of his life. He's just forward motion. This is just the way it fucking is. And that level of resolve and confidence, I find like mystifying. I'm, I'm just looking at him. He's making the wrong decision, but it doesn't fucking matter. He's just like, nope, this is where we're going. This is the way forward because he grew up in this insane environment in Europe. It's survival. Right. And that's in me to a degree, not that part, but the survival element and the canniness and my ability to kind of size people up and move quickly and think quickly. I get that all from him. I mean, you've seen, you've, obviously you see how he is in the league. He's like, I'm not playing anymore. I'm fucking out. Right. Like, that's what he does. He's just like, I'm out. Fuck you. And right. I'm just like, what? How do you do that? You know? I think that resolve, and this is, I, look, I don't know any different. That resolve is a New York thing. I've certainly sure. been in that situation a bunch of times where I'm just been like, well, okay, well, fuck right. you then. Right. But that's certainly not how you want to raise children. And I do think that that attitude is a product of trauma. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I constantly say this to my wife, Rachel, where I'm like, if I did this shit in my house, do you have any fucking idea what would have happened to me? Any of the shit my daughter is pulling right now. And I said, it would be game over, game over. And I try, and obviously I lose this battle every time. I think one thing that I've learned from parenting in general, and I've learned this sort of through experience, but also actually through like, we're taking our daughters to this behavioral therapy thing is they're sponges, right? They're antennas. Yeah, 100%. So if you regulate and project calmness and confidence, then they tune themselves to your frequency, right? No, even if they bluster and they go crazy and they scream, if you, and that's the key that it's less about the action you take, but more about the way you're able to regulate your emotions when you give that action. And that's something I constantly would think that successful parenting was about, well, you have to do this or you have to do that. And yes, but really it's more about the way you do it. It's it super deep. And I've, I've seen it physically in this behavioral therapy we're doing with my daughter, Cecilia, who's super, super headstrong and very difficult, but it's almost a programming thing that when I followed the script that's been laid out by the therapist, it's amazing. Her responses just get changes instantly. You're like, this is crazy. How is it possible that she was going nuts and throwing her shoes at me two seconds ago? And then now when I just sort of say these things, it's almost like the Manchurian candidate. It's fucking <laughs> weird. But it, it, the key is the regulation and it's teaching them boundaries, safe boundaries where they're like, this is what's going to happen if you don't do this, right? I'm not angry about it. I'm not worked up about it. But if you don't do this, this is the boundary. And then this is the consequence. And it's amazing how effective that is in a way that I'm almost like deep for yourself too. You're like, holy shit. You know, it's that simple, right? Yeah. I mean, when it's you're like, raising it, kids, kids ain't the only people learning the lessons in this situation. Yeah. yeah. It's just wild. You sit there and you're like, okay, it's about creating boundaries in your professional life and your personal life. And it's about holding those boundaries without getting emotional and, and saying, this is where I am. This is you. This is me. This is the boundary. This is where the line is. And that was sort of that experience with the bar. All that stuff was very much about, I found a boundary. I was like, holy moly, I found one. I have one and this is it. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering if you take the sum total of everything that's happened in the last two and a half years from your livelihood getting shut down, you lost people. Uh, yeah. 
during yeah. the COVID experience. I mean, not to say it's over, but at least the worst right. of it, thank goodness, yeah. is over. You relocated twice, raising kids. You had this experience with the bar. You've gone through a lot of what's, I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for, a lot of life-changing, serious shit in the last sure. 36 months. Sure. Uh, and then you you had a repetitive stress injury and you lost your voice on top of all of that. So what are you doing to keep yourself together with all of this tumult and um, these things happening around you? Well, I'd like to say therapy, um, but that's not true because I've been going to therapy, but I haven't really found a therapist that I like. I also got like diagnosed by a psychiatrist with a diagnosis that I don't agree with. So I'm trying to find a second opinion about that. I, it's been very difficult for my wife and it's been tough, but in a lot of ways, she's been the thing that's been keeping me afloat because she's hard, but she's also consistent. And I think I've been wildly inconsistent. I'm presenting very calm and cool here, but it has not been that. I've, it's been really emotional, especially during the silence. Right. I mean, that will make you go crazy. It's unbelievable. Just the ability to not talk, to not say something, how that will send you off the cliff. How much my mood changed within two hours of being able to talk versus just any problem you have when you can't talk seems so much fucking worse. The one thing I think about a lot, I think about a lot is I have a dear friend of mine who committed suicide in 2019 and he was the age that I am now. Right. And he had two kids, but the same age. And he clearly had mental health stuff, but it was one of those things where it wasn't present in the everyday hang. But then now knowing what I know and that there was an episode in college, like it tracks, but it wasn't something you picked up on. Right. And he found himself in the situation where he, he found like there was no other. And I think he had run into some money trouble, but he was a successful doctor and he left a family. And I think about that all a lot. It was so surreal. And I find a weird parallel there where I'm like, okay, so that's rock bottom, right? That is rock bottom. Like I'm out. And knowing that if I were to make that choice, then I would be him. Does that make sense? I mean, he obviously was like very ill, but, but the crazy part is like, it was a break. It like all happened in like a month. It was like one of these things where he was fine and on the surface. And then just like, like that, he was a different person. And then he just, sorry if I'm taking forever to make this point. No, no. You can't, <clears throat> we can only take so much. We can only take so much self-hatred, much abuse, so much intensity that eventually we will break. Right. And my voice is a perfect example. It just stopped. And if I continue to beat myself up for where I am or where I should be or what could have happened and all those things, eventually I will break. And there's something about that that keeps me in the game. I'm not really good at it a lot of times. And most times I'm just murdering myself with fucking the past and stupidity. 
like on an eight o'clock on a fucking Sunday morning, like why there's nothing I can change. There's nothing I can do, but I'm just running it like a fucking freak in my head. And more and more, I just be like, you need to stop. You just got to stop. If you keep this kind of behavior with yourself, not going to lead to good things. No, it's like a boxer. My brain can only take so much. And yeah, there's clearly some other underlying, probably mental illness that I do that to myself with, but at least I'm aware enough, at least at this moment to realize that I need to get a handle on that. You're not seeing anything that is foreign to me at all. Mm -hmm. I certainly beat myself up for a lot of shit. The past can't be changed. The unfortunate thing is that we don't always know better. So a lot of times you make mistakes, you learn from them, and then you you don't do that the next time the thing happens, but you don't know not to do that the first time the thing happens. And I think a lot of people beat themselves up based on shit that they did that wasn't done spitefully, but was done when they just didn't know what the consequences were going to be for it. Yeah, I mean, you can't really blame yourself for the way shit goes down. I mean, the only thing that I found that's effective is when I'm in those moments, breathe, step back, calm the fuck down. <laughs> and then usually when I'm able to do that, which is not that often, <laughs> the the problem seems diminished and the solution is clear. Did you watch that thing on Netflix, the Jonah Hill documentary, Stutz? No. You got to watch this thing. Well, what's that about? He did a documentary about his therapist. Oh, interesting. And it's really good. And this guy's fascinating. He's a native New Yorker, been living in LA, and he's got all these kind of systems and tools. He's got Parkinson's. He's totally fascinating. One of the things that I thought was fascinating is that the uh, he says, basically, the key to happiness is accepting that there are three constants in life that you, no matter what you do, you will not get rid of. And that's pain, uncertainty, and constant work. If you don't accept that and you don't embrace that, you're never going to be happy. So having that perspective that this is just part, this process of frustration and not understanding and failure and struggle, that's life. That's not shit going wrong. It's, it's just how all, it works. We all got it. It's just how it works. Yeah. And this idea that that sort of learning to, to embrace those moments when you're really trying to synthesize the problem and figure out the fuck is going on, you're in it. You're living. And that part is like, okay, wow. So when I'm tripping out in, in my deepest spiral, this is all part of the experience. This isn't like something's wrong with me. And in fact, it's like a pretty common part of the experience. It, yes, indeed. It is. We want to think that we're special and all this stuff. But I have to say, when I hear that stuff, when I'm having problems with myself, to know that I'm not like a freak, <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, no, this is okay. People deal with this shit. That's the one thing that makes me feel better. Because when I'm in my deepest pity party spiral of all the fucking dumb shit that's going on in my head, the thought that goes on is like, why me? What did I do? The fuck, what, what, why this isn't fair and I don't deserve this. And why does like the shit cloud always fucking go, come over me? And then I'm starting to realize, no, no, no. Everyone feels this way. <laughs> Jeff Bezos has this problem. Yeah. They all do. Yeah. And one thing that's real frustrating about LA, I'll tell you, is that no one will ever present that way because it's bad for business. 
And I don't know that many people are self-realized enough to even be able to acknowledge the shit that they're dealing with. They do, yes. But like also, it's also bad for business to sit there and be mad about it too. Right. It's like, I'm in the shit right now and this is what's happening. Right. And I got to fucking figure out some way to get my way through it, whether it's therapy, medication, fucking running, yoga, deep breathing, or, jerking off, whatever right. the fuck. What a lot it, of people you know. do also, which is drugs and fucking right. drinking and overworking and yeah. all that stuff. I just finished reading this oral history of Prince. And they're talking about the way he treated people, the way he overworked himself, ultimately the drug abuse that killed him. All of that is just based on unresolved shit that he never really came to terms with. I mean, this shit will kill you, man. Yeah. yeah. You look and, to and whatever for a salve, and if it's not a healthy salve, it's going to lead you down a darker road. But that's sort of where I'm realizing with all the things that I'm feeling like, yeah, you need to figure it out, but you also just got to live with it you just gotta breathe and get through it right because sometimes shit just sucks yeah i mean ain't none of us living on a cloud right now like nobody i i don't know one person whose life is perfect yeah that's one thing out here that's weird it's like there's not a lot of verbalizing the struggle it's like living their dream or trying to live their dream and that's the commerce so i've definitely felt a little bit when i'm like looking at people and i'm like really you know, How do you it, deal with it, that? Because when I go out to hard. LA, it, I see people, there is a, and I don't want to use the word fakeness, but I'm going to use it. There's a different way to say it. I'm not really sure how to say it. Well, it, people in New York were engaged constantly with the elements. It's such a difficult city. And that level of sort of transactional kind of like, and problem solving, that's so much the language of the city. It's just not like that out here. It doesn't mean that people are bad, but they don't have those dilemmas, daily dilemmas, like getting home and to and from work or going out to eat. It's a problem solving exercise in New York. I got to get on this fucking train. I got to figure out what time it comes, make sure I can get over here, get the right price point, get in the restaurant. It's like when your brain is, it's like a maze. You're trying to figure it out. Here, things are just way easier. It's like, oh, I'll just go do that. It's a big ass city, man. There's a lot of real ones out here. You meet them. It takes a minute, but they're out here. I mean, people. also real recognizes real. So. Oh yeah. People who are from here are like, it's kind of wild when you meet them. You're like, oh, you're just a chilled out New Yorker. <laughs> you're just like me, but you're just a little bit more relaxed. They've been smoking legal weed a lot longer than we have. Yeah. So. Those are the people I like the most. One of my best friends is this guy, Willie Aaron, who I've become really close with. He's basically a 60 year old musician, but he's born in West LA. Went to Fairfax High, and he just smiles, but zero bullshit individual. Right. <laughs> he's great. Great hang. And we just sit there, and he's like, yeah, that guy's full of shit. There's a lot of fluff, but there's a lot of fucking people screaming in New York City. So there's a lot of fucking unnecessary anger in New York. Yeah. We find it, we find it charming because we're from there. But hey, dude, the older I get, or maybe I, I shouldn't even attribute it to age, I'm sick of the anger. Sure. Uh, Maybe you're ready for LA. I, you're not the first person to say that. If you can put dude, me behind the wheel of a car and teach me how to use it properly, I would dude, consider it. I learned to drive a, a year and a half ago. So if I figured the shit out, you can figure it out. I know how to drive. I just don't oh. like driving. <laughs> There's that. I mean, I also would definitely have to relearn how to drive. Right. I mean, I didn't know how to drive. I straight up didn't know. This part of that actually helped me. Like when I was getting in LA traffic, I'm like, oh, I got this. Like, and it's fucking insanity. <laughs> Right. But yeah, I'm optimistic for that all this stuff that I've been through, it's stuff that needed to happen for me. 
to get to where I needed to go in terms of my happiness and feeling like uh, my life had value and raising a family. It wasn't pretty. It's not pretty. It's not elegant. And it's not like fun. But I, I know for a fact that in New York, I wasn't really happy with what I was doing. So I guess and, the question is... Or rather, I wasn't at peace with what I was doing. Right. Because it's like, I might end up playing way worse gigs here and it might be like way... But it's more like I hadn't accepted it. So let's imagine that the pandemic didn't happen. Where do you think you would be? I don't know, man. It's so hard for me because I think one thing I talk about a lot with this is that we had Ezra Christmas Day 2019. So that was this like crazy vector that was entering into my world. And then the pandemic came and it was like a double right. whack. Right. So I don't know. I mean, I don't even know what it's like to have two kids in New York. I barely was there with them. So I might be divorced. We might have moved anyway. I might be still in that apartment fucking gigging my brains out. Right. So it's like, I don't know. And that's also kind of the cool thing about this whole thing with LA. I have no idea what the fuck's going to happen. I have no idea. I might not even be a musician in four months. And I'm okay with, I'm like, I'm not okay with that, but I'm like, okay. All right. Well, if that's what has to happen. and I got to receive it. Yes. I am more ready to receive this shit than I ever have been. Like, if I never write a song again, if I write 800 songs, I'm truly just open to whatever the fuck the world presents. And I definitely was not like that in New York. I was like, this is where I'm going. I need to get to this place. Even if I didn't really know, it was like a feeling of getting forward. But every day that passes here, I'm just like, all right, what's coming? I don't know. I'm down. Let's just figure it out. And fully prepared to play gigs that normally I would bitch about and complain about. And I'm just like, all right, I have a ton of gigs booked at pirate themed dueling piano bar in, in fucking Buena Park. I'm not loving it, but I'm also just like, okay, this is where it's happening right now. Let's just do this. Let's get through it and not be like, fuck this. I'm better than this. And I deserve that. All those thoughts are gone. So that, that must be a good thing, right? I think so. Okay, I hope I so. <laughs> so. And maybe that's part of what you're sensing when, you, when we first started the conversation of me being like chilled out. I'm just like, yeah, I don't know anymore. There's value you know? to being able to leave shit up to the universe sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I, I just feel like the universe just kicked the shit out of me. So I'm just like, all right. <laughs> What's next? You got me. Let's go, go to the next thing. Yeah, man. But I do think it'll work out here, man. I'm too resilient. I'm too innately skilled and... I'm going to decode this shit. It just might take a minute. There you go. That's the right attitude you know? to have, I think. Right. Yeah. And I just don't want to go broke. Fingers crossed. I want to give Julian a very heartfelt thanks for being so open and honest. Uh, this was a uh, an enlightening conversation for me. You think you know somebody, and uh, they reveal all sorts of interesting things to you. Uh, you can find Julian Villard online. JulianVillard.com is his website. He is Julian Villard on Twitter and Instagram. I think he still has Twitter. I don't know if anyone has Twitter anymore because I don't have Twitter. But uh, you can find him online just about anywhere. Book him if you are on the West Coast. And uh, I hope I didn't ruin your voice too much, Julian. Uh, I know you were just coming back and I made you talk for an hour. So I feel like I should kind of apologize for that. Uh, but uh, I thank you again for appearing on the show a second time, and maybe we'll do a part three at some point in the future.
Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, Follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as DetoxPodGuy. Uh, You can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, Rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings, uh, follow me on social media, like I said, uh, follow our Patreon, or subscribe to my Patreon, actually, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, you get access to exclusive episodes, you get episodes a little earlier than the general public, you get a cool-ass sticker, lots of stuff, once again, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, quick shout out to Calvin Williams for providing the music, and, uh, doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by jacob block i thank you all for listening i wish you all the best please take care of each other till next time peace